Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. Today we're talking about the global universe of ETFs. Some of my favorite things to talk about. Back in 2003, there were only 276 ETFs available worldwide. Yes, we counted. Fast forward to today, the number has grown. There are more than 8,500 ETFs globally for you to choose from. So many assets within an ETF wrapper, though, and that's why there's such a popular choice for investors who want diversification low-cost access as well uh, to equities. But how do we choose the right ETFs to invest in when there are such a plethora of choices available? To help us out, Tim Phillips is founder of Tim Talks Money. He talks everything to do with money. Tim, good morning. Hi, Michelle. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk ETFs today. Me too. Tell us, uh, when we talk about asset classes, do ETFs pretty much Mm. cover every asset class known to man? I think they do. There's probably some of the alternatives that might be a bit harder to access like private equity but there are ways that they are being made available to retail investors as you know you've Mm -hmm. seen some of the exchanges like addx and a few others that are trying to make private assets available to individual retail investors but for most asset classes you can access it through an etf and i think the etf wrapper as you said is one of the best structures because it's very liquid it's traded every day you know there's not a um nav that needs to be calculated at the end of the day like with uh with the mutual fund structure Mm -hmm. and so etfs give you that liquidity to get in and out of positions if you want and it makes the bid ask spreads a lot more narrow so i think in the end the retail investor gets to benefit so i think that's one of the best things that's happened over the past 20 or so years in terms of the investor landscape is that the range of ETFs available to investors has grown so much and obviously assets under management for ETFs has exploded over the past two decades as well. A lot of people get confused by the naming conventions and think all ETFs look like the same, at least if you just look at the title. Why aren't Mm. all ETFs the same? I mean, why is the SPDR S&P 500 maybe different from the Vanguard S&P 500? Well, I think it's all to do with the manager or the investment manager that uh, that is running the fund and for most i think you would really concentrate on the expense ratio so that's basically the amount of money that you're paying to invest into that etf so the names may be the same or maybe similar rather and mm-hmm. they may have some of the same holdings or some of you know like they tried the s&p 500 for example mm-hmm. but the expense ratio can vary wildly so if you're thinking about the s&p 500 some of the lowest cost etfs are 0.03 percent but they're listed in the u.s um, and they give you a lot of liquidity some of the funds like the spy is is over 500 billion in terms of or over maybe like 300 billion in terms of aum so it's very very big very large, it makes the bid-ask spreads narrower, so you as an investor are benefiting. But then others which are a bit harder to access, like other markets are a bit harder to access, like maybe India or areas in, in Asia, like individual markets, individual select markets that aren't as big as the US, then expense ratios tend to be bigger because the cost of entry for the manager is higher, right? So they, they, then they tend, to, they tend to charge a higher expense ratio. So for things in Asia, you can actually get expense ratios as high as 0.7%. So you're talking about 20 times as expensive as maybe accessing the US market. Okay, so let's say we've decided we want ETFs that track the S&P 500. We've looked at the expense ratio. We're still trying to decide on the exact ETF to invest in. So you've Mm. recently written an article about three big 
things to clarify before buying an ETF. I'm going to use that as our framework for, for this part of the show. Help us yeah. walk, walk us through understanding the market or the theme of the ETF. What do we need to do? Well, I think for the for you when you're actually investing into an ETF, first off, you need to understand your risk profile. So, what are you willing to um, what are you willing to stomach in terms of volatility, right? So, I think one of the key things that a lot of investors miss before they start investing is they don't understand or they're not fully aware of their risk appetite. So, what are they willing to stomach? So, if you're a more conservative investor and maybe you're a bit older in terms of your investing time horizon and you're closer to retirement, you might be thinking a bit more about bond ETFs or a 60-40 portfolio that's a bit more balanced and less on the equity side. Um, So that's something that you need to be aware of in terms of your investing time horizon and your risk appetite. And so for that, it's best to take a global approach, right? So you'd Mm -hmm. have a lot of people maybe perhaps aren't aware that 60% of the global equity market resides in the U.S., right? So the U.S. makes up 60%. About 20 years ago, the U.S. made up about 40% or just over 40%. So it's grown 20% in terms of its um, market cap value as a percentage of global market cap, right? So the U.S. really is a market that you can't avoid or ignore, given how well it's performed. And you've seen all the big tech names that have done so well over the past two decades. So they've become a really big part of the global market index for both bonds and for stocks, but particularly for stocks. Um, So if you're thinking about splitting yourself into an ETF for equities and then an ETF for bonds, it's probably better to have an ETF that focuses solely on the US and then have an ETF that focuses on ex-US, so everything outside of the US, right, which is the remaining 60%, because the US is so big in terms of its size. And then if you're thinking about cost, you obviously want the lower the expense ratio, the better. Um, Actually, one thing that hasn't been perhaps uh, mentioned so much mm. with ETFs is mm. the domicile. So where is it domiciled? If you're thinking about the withholding tax in the US, it's 30% for dividends. Right. But if you buy an Irish domiciled ETF, so you can buy ETFs or USITs ETFs with the USITs structure that are listed in London mm. and they're domiciled in Ireland. And Ireland has a double taxation treaty with the US. So it actually allows you to be taxed only at 15% versus 30% on any distributions of dividends that the ETF pays out. So actually, it, it might be a good idea to think about investing into an Irish domiciled ETF, which is listed in London um, versus something that's listed in the US. But the downside to the London uh, bit of it is that the liquidity isn't as good. Uh, Pricing in terms of brokerage fees and everything else, it tends to be higher than the US market. But what I found is if you're younger, maybe it's better to start in the US because it's cheaper and you can buy fractional shares. But as you get older and you get more money and you start buying whole shares, it's easier to probably invest into an Irish domiciled ETF given you have a lower withholding tax. And as we know, that can compound over time for your distributions. You mentioned the UK. Um, there's stamp duty that applies to UK listed stocks on the LSE. Um, but ETFs containing UK stocks are not affected? Oh, well, it's basically ETFs that are listed on the LSE, but they're domiciled in Ireland. So Ireland actually has a real stranglehold on ETFs that are domiciled in Europe. So earlier this year, Irish domiciled ETFs passed, surpassed 1 trillion euros in AUM. Mm. And they had about 270 billion or so at the beginning of 2017. So you've almost quadrupled uh, AUM in terms of ETFs domiciled in Ireland over about six years. So it kind of shows you the the, the appeal of uh, the Irish domicility for investors. 
And so international investors have kind of flocked to Irish domiciled ETFs because of the tax advantages of Ireland. Luxembourg is also an area in Europe that has a favorable tax status, but Ireland is really way ahead of, of Luxembourg just because of that uh, double taxation treaty that has with the U.S. Because if you're an international investor investing into U.S. stocks or into, into U.S. Um, listed ETFs, then mm-hmm. you get taxed 30 percent, right? So so that 15 percent that you're getting back is is invaluable for a lot of international investors. Remind us again why you're critical of Asia-focused ETFs. Yeah, so for me, Asia-focused ETFs are mainly focused on large cap indices. And large cap indices, they tend to have a lot of old economy names such as banks and oil and gas names, things that are that tend to be state-owned. They're a bit more sluggish. They're a bit more anemic. They're not very innovative in terms of their business structure. And so you've seen Asia-focused ETFs, at least in the large cap sector, really underperform uh, long-term versus maybe active funds. But if you're actually talking about small cap ETFs in, say, India or Japan or, mm-hmm. or other areas, other countries in Asia, they can actually do really well if you're tracking an ETF. Obviously, the cost will be higher because you're tracking into the small cap space. But ETFs, that generally tracks small caps in, say, the U.S. have done a lot better than large caps over the long term because you're obviously taking a bit more risk investing into uh, ETFs that are focused on small cap sector versus the large cap. And so large cap are safer in terms of the volatility, safer, quote unquote, safer in terms of the volatility is not as high. But over the longer term, um, small caps have outperformed large caps, at least in the U.S. And over the past 20 years in some of these Asian countries like India and and Japan, if you look at the small cap performance versus their large cap peers, they've actually done uh, very well and they've outperformed as well. Great overview of uh, each focus ETF. Tim talks money, and we love it when he talks money with us here on Money <laughs> FM 89.3. Tim Phillips is my guest. Help us understand the costs incurred when we think of investing in an ETF. Uh, just the mm. main areas we should be looking at. Uh, well, as I said, the expense ratio is the key. So if you've got an expense ratio of literally three basis points or 0.03%, mm-hmm. it, it's, more, it's more, I guess, pr- fruitful to look at it on, a, on an average of for every $1,000 that you have invested. So for every 1000 you have invested in an ETF that charges 0.03% per year, you're getting charged $0.30 cents, uh, annually. Right, basically. But if you have an ETF that is charging 0.8%, mm. then you're being charged about 25 times you know, what you would normally pay for three basis points. So I think it's looking at the expense ratio as key, understanding how much it costs to trade an ETF. Are you trading in and out of ETFs? I tend to think that if you're allocating assets like bonds and, e- and equities, you're probably not going to be trading because it's more long-term wealth accumulation. Right. But if you're trading in thematic ETFs, then bid-ask spreads matter. If you're trading maybe a, like a NASDAQ QQQ, then if, if you're trading in and out of that, you want liquidity. But for most people who are buy and hold investors and just maybe buying every month or putting money away every month, then I don't think the bid-ask spread is as crucial um, to them. It's more focused on the expense ratio because those expense ratios can build up over time. But the Irish domiciled expense ratios actually aren't so bad. I think they're about 7 to 10 basis points versus 3 basis points in the U.S. So the U.S. has the lowest, but if you're looking at Irish domiciled ETFs, they're very competitive as well. All right. How would we know if we're investing in an ETF at a reasonable sort of um, cost level and not at a premium? I think it's important to look across 
the spectrum of ETF providers that are providing a similar type of ETF. So if mm-hmm. you're looking at AI or robotics or disruptive innovation, they'll have a set they'll have a set amount of providers that probably that probably issue ETFs that are very similar. I think look at the base or the average of those expense ratios. Also look at your exposure. This is something that's also key. Remember it's a basket. So if you're looking at individual names that you're exposed to, it's important to to think about how much a particular name makes up. I mean in the NASDAQ QQQ you've got Apple and Microsoft that make up over twenty five percent of the fund, right? So you've got two I mean, they're powerhouse stocks, but there's still a lot of concentration, in, even in the NASDAQ ETF, which you would think NASDAQ 100 tracks 100 uh, tech stocks, but two stocks make up 25% of the actual ETF. So it's a lot of concentration in things like that. But if you're thinking about things such as the ARC, you know, Kathy Wood's ARC innovative ETF that charges, I think, 0.75 basis points or 80 basis points, that's a that's a lot. But then how does that compare to, to other types of active ETFs? I think it's important to distinguish between passive, which is just something tracking the S&P 500 or yep. like a global bond market. Mm-hmm. And those tend to be a lot cheaper because obviously you don't need to hire active uh, teams to manage out, uh, the, the certain weightings and where you're going to overweight. But for something like a Kathy Wood who is being active in her in her positioning, she's going to be trading in and out of positions a lot. And the turnover is going to be like a mutual fund. It's going to be quite high, actually. So passive ETS, they tend to just track the market and they give you the market return. So if we've looked at the past 20 years or so, at least in the US, you've seen that not many fund managers have actually outperformed in the US. It's been extremely difficult to create, uh, to generate alpha, at least on a consistent basis. So I think over the past 20 years, we've seen 3,000 mutual funds in the US and only about 44% have survived, um, have actually, you know, survived 20 years. And then of those 3000 funds, only 18% could outperform the S&P 500. So it's extremely difficult to outperform in the US. And so that's something that you should keep in mind if you're looking at um, active ETFs that are looking outperforming a certain benchmark or sector. But I think for most ETFs, what you want to look at is to make sure that the ETF, if it's not tracking the S&P 500 or the global equity index, that mm-hmm. it's at least got an index that is bench, it's benchmarked against and that it's able to beat, right? Because if you're looking at Kathy Wood, she's trying to outform maybe the NASDAQ or something that's a similar type of proxy for her, but they need to be outperforming on a regular basis. And so that's really, really difficult in an active ETF situation. All right. What would happen if an authorized participant or a market maker withdrew from the ETF market? If they withdrew from the ETF market, I think that would be, it depends on the size. If something like an iShares or a Vanguard withdrew, that would obviously be very disruptive to a particular market. If you're thinking about the US, I think the liquidity there is very difficult to disrupt for any particular ETF manager just because it's it's such a massive market. But if you're thinking about a sizable manager withdrawing in, say, the Singapore market or even uh, you know one of these one of the smaller equity markets, then it could disrupt the the liquidity that we see. Um, I know there's been a lot of talk about ETFs, uh, sort of perhaps distorting the market returns, but there's always going to be a place for active and there's always going to be a place for passive, right? So I don't right. think there's any reason why people who are active don't have passive investments. I'm sure they do. And the same, if you're passive, then you might want to scratch that itch and have some stocks as well, which is completely fine. So I think the argument is that you should have a core of passive to make sure that you're just tracking the market and at least getting the market return. But if you want some active in there and you want to have individual stocks or certain sectors or certain ETFs that are exposed to thematics, then that's totally 
That's totally cool as well. I think it just depends on your on your risk tolerance. But I think the key is that you should really have some market broad market exposure that you're at least getting the market return. How can we be measuring the success of our ETF portfolio? As I said, I think benchmarking is key. So some people just get maybe five, six percent a year and they said they've done okay, but they don't really benchmark themselves against anything or they've not really thought how has the market returned? You know, so maybe the MSCI world, how has that done over the past twenty years on an annualized basis? And if you've lost to the NSCI world or if you've underperformed, that means you're not getting the market return. Or if you've underperformed the S&P 500 by holding a basket of U.S. stocks, that means you've underperformed, right? So I think there are some key benchmarks that we need to really focus our portfolio's performance versus. And if we're being too active, then maybe we can shift a bit more into passive just to say that it's a lot easier and a lot less stress to hold passive if we aren't outperforming on the active side. But if you really are interested in, in, in investing and you like holding stuff and and you're outperforming over the longer term, then that's great and you can continue to do that. But I think there's always an argument for benchmarking and I think that's the key. I think a lot of investors maybe overlook that fact is that we're doing okay, I'm getting maybe 5 6% per year annualized, but how does that compare to what you are entitled to if you say just put it in an index ETF and didn't do anything, right? And so that's a big difference that I think um, that you can make in terms of measuring your your relative performance. You mentioned the bid and ask spread a while earlier. When is the best time to buy and sell ETFs? I don't think there's anything really a specific time that's good or bad. If you're trading, the bid ask, as I said, is is more it's going to be narrower if you have a larger AUM. If there's a massive fund, so something like the SPY will have a very narrow bid ask spread, whereas something that is maybe in an emerging market small cap will have a larger bid ask spread. But it also depends on whether you're trading. If you're tra- if you're a trader and you're trading in and out of ETFs a lot, then that is going to be something that you're concerned or more concerned about. But as I said, if you're a buy and hold investor and you're buying once a month, if the bid ask spreads, I don't know, 20, 30 basis points versus two basis points, I don't think it's going to have that much of an impact on your returns over the long term because you're buying once a month or maybe you're buying once a quarter. But if you're buying every other day or you're trading every week in and out, then that adds up in terms of your in terms of your trading costs. So that's something that you have to be aware of. But I think that's more of a concern, as I said, for people who are traders and who have a lot of uh, uh, trading actively. Okay. This one's calling for hypothetical reasons, but I'm sure you can come <laughs> up with a couple. Um, someone might say, why is the NASDAQ 100 up 2% at the close in the US, but my ASX quoted uh, NASDAQ ETF is down 1% this morning? Sorry, that was, oh, so the, um, the ASX, you mean in, in Australia? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that might be to do with the, with the quote on futures, because I think futures That's this morning it. are down. Mm. So it depends on, on the futures. Um, so it's quoted, it's quoted down. So it's just tracking whatever the U.S. market is going up. If we look at futures this morning, I think they're down 70 uh, basis points on the NASDAQ. So NASDAQ's down 0.7% futures. S&P's down 0.7 as well, 0.73. So I think it's tracking... Whatever's happened over the weekend, I think, you know, unrest in, in Israel and Gaza, that's caused a bit more volatility. Uh, we saw job numbers last Friday, but it rebounded quite strongly um, and the 10-year treasury came down. But there's still a lot of uncertainty, right? And markets, they don't like uncertainty. So I think it's just more to do with uh, what's happened, uh, how it's happening in futures and what happened over the weekend. So it could be time zone, could be after hours trading as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite ETF? Uh, well, I think for Irish domiciled ETF, I actually quite like the CSPX, which is the iShares, basically, you know, the IVV, which is the S&P 500, but it's the one listed in the uh, in London. So it's Irish domiciled. So you're getting a lot less of a withholding tax charge to you 
If you're looking at just the U.S. ETF in terms of the large ones, I actually prefer something that's a bit more diversified. So if you're thinking about the Vanguard U.S. market, the S&P 500 is always the most popular go-to, but that's really focused on the top 500 names. So you're not really taking into account maybe the small or the mid-cap section of the U.S. economy. So if you're looking at a really broad exposure to the U.S. market then something like the Vanguard sort of total stock market ETF, which is VTI, that has around 3,900 securities within it. So you're more diversified across more names and more parts of the U.S. economy. So I think for me, that's an interesting one to own if you're looking for more broad exposure to the U.S. Um, I think the key to, to differentiate between the U.S. and Ireland is Ireland has that tax advantage, which is great, but it doesn't have as much choice in terms of the numbers of ETFs that you have. So I think for markets and like global benchmark indices, you can use Ireland. But if you're looking at more thematic stuff, it probably makes more sense to go into the U.S. because the U.S. has a lot more choice if you're looking at, say, healthcare or if you're looking at, yeah. uh, you know, AI or, or medical devices, something like that, thematic. Yeah. Um, the choice in the U.S. in the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, is a, is a lot wider than it is in uh, London. Well, sound to choice. All right, mm. Tim, uh, let's talk money a little bit. What yeah. money tip do you have for us today? Yeah, so I actually put something out in my weekly newsletter. So do mm. sign up at timtalksmoney.com. I have a money tip of the week. Uh, so my money tip of the week is this week, I, I actually wrote just a bit more about um, you know investors. We're, if we're in the investment industry, we always like to talk about how we're doing things right and other people are doing things wrong. And you know, I, I really don't like the attitude of, you know, my way is the right way and your way is terrible. And so you should do it this way. Mm -hmm. But that happens a lot, uh, unfortunately. And I think it's more important for individual investors to just really take stock of their own personal, their own personal risk appetite, their age, their available capital, their life goals. Because I think that's important. That's going to really shape your investment philosophy and how you think about investing. And so everyone's going to be different. So I'm different. Uh, you're going to be different to me, right? Your risk appetite can be different. So we're not going to have exactly the same holdings and exactly the same asset allocation. But I think it's mostly going to be determined by your risk appetite and your investing time horizon, right? At least on the core side, if you're thinking about just allocating to passive index ETFs. Um, and so if someone's a bit older and they want to preserve capital, they're going to be buying more bonds. But if someone's just started working, you know, buying bonds probably doesn't make any sense for them whatsoever. <laughs> um, you know, if you're thinking about you're getting paid more in terms of the risk you take. If you take more risk, if you're in equities, you're going to get paid more over the longer term. That's just how the data has uh, worked out, right? So that's what the history shows us. And so if you're younger and you have a lot more time to tolerate the market's ups and downs, you're going to be a bit more aggressive. And if you're older and you're maybe close to retirement, you might have an 80%, 80% bond portfolio, 20% equity portfolio. And you might have, I don't know, how much in cash, right? You're supposed to have about three to five years in liquid cash when you retire, just so that you don't need to sell out the market if you, if you need to. So I think their asset allocation for every individual is going to be slightly different. And at the end of the day, it's really important that whatever you own and whatever you're invested in, you're comfortable owning. So if the market falls 10, 20% and you're 100% invested in, into equities, you're okay with that and you're not going to cash out because investing is, is shouldn't be stressful, right? You should be able to sleep well at night. So I think owning anything that doesn't let you sleep well at night is probably a sign that you, you should be uh, allocating a, a bit different. But I think at the end of the day, I don't, 
I don't want individual investors to think that they need to, to emulate someone else like a Warren Buffett or, mm. you know, a Peter Lynch or something. But I think go with whatever your investment philosophy is and what your risk appetite is because you're going to be different and there's no right or wrong way of, of investing. Yeah, yeah. And even Tim's way may not be your way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it, it could be completely different. So I think everyone's different and I don't think you should, you should be disheartened by that. Well, thank you for giving us a primer on ETF investing and helping us understand the ins and outs. Tim Phillips is founder of Tim Talks Money. You should check out his website. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A W E D I O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.